standing nice and tidy. It's a rule I learned in school. Get your money every Friday. Happy endings are the rule. So divide up those in darkness from the ones who walk in light. Light 'em up, boys. There's your picture. Drop the shadow. This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. Yes,、um, I just wanted to mention that、uh, I'm preempted this Thursday morning at eight twenty. Ah, Condi Rice and that drama in Washington D.C. will be listening to the hearing starting at five thirty. Oh, the scene is Shakespearean, part Greek tragedy or part Greek. Well, no, I think it's a Roman farce,、uh, some of it. But、uh, I looked the other day, and I don't know why it just seemed a little deja vu all over again. It's a little late for justice, and the dead are still dead. But in any case, George Bush is beginning to look like a loser at last.、Uh, Thank the goddess for that. Let's see. Today is April the sixth. Oh, April Poetry Month. April the sixth, two thousand and four. Last Sunday was Palm Sunday, and coming right up is Easter Sunday. Time for a resurrection, a little rebirthing. For some, this is a religious holiday. For others, it's a pagan celebration. A、metaphor for many, many things, but it's all in the spin, the history of God and、uh, what is the word,、uh, the sacred,、uh, the history of God and indeed of goddesses is a fascinating study in human development.、Uh, some call it human evolution,、uh, the evolution of consciousness. I remember Gertrude Stein saying that consciousness had replaced religion. I'm not sure she was right about that.、Uh, I'm more or less with the folks who give this stuff a psychological spin. I see it uh, uh, that way.、Um, the Titans, for example, the、um, giant primal forces—they were the early gods.、Uh, They stood over our cribs. You remember, <laughs> elemental forces for dark or light. They have the power of life and death over us. Early religions based on fear. Later, there are these authoritarians. You know, I like Wotan and Thor. Popular was Yahweh, thunder gods, stern parents, Zeus with his、uh, lightning bolt to strike us. <laughs> Shock and awe was their approach, indeed, indeed. Oh, how the boys love their lightning, their fire, their bombs. Rule through terror. 
Of course, now there are plenty of compassionate gods and goddesses. Divine love is always a a great force on the earth. You know, love is perennial as the grass. Uh, it's especially popular when you're getting started with a new religion. If you look at the beginning of anything, when it starts up, you know, there's all that love and compassion. I think of all the women who cook the Last Supper. You know, the mass and everything hadn't turned into that dry, artificial, uh, pseudo, pseudo supper. Today, I want to read a little bit of a particular story by a revisionist writer, dear old D.H. Lawrence. I want to read a bit of it because it's his spin on resurrection or rebirth or coming alive again. In his story, resurrection is all about the revolution of touch. Uh, someone somewhere said that all evil springs from separation and I'm never sure that's exactly on target, but more and more it feels right. Uh, the D.H. Lawrence story was first titled The Escaped Cock, but most editions use the title The Man Who Died. I came across this short novel when I was a college student half a century ago. It was in a little used bookstore right up here on Telegraph Avenue in Berkeley. I was thrilled at the iconoclastic notion that Jesus Christ had other choices. I mean, imagine a revisionist story. Uh, actually, it's all about the fact that sexuality itself can be a path to the sacred. In my day, uh, <laughs> pagan propaganda was a little off the wall, but certainly most welcome in the mid-20th century. Yes, America, before this uh, culture of the goddess got going, uh, it it was actually, I think, the, the male stream in those days, male stream thought, did not really include the goddess. We had the Robert Graves book, The White Goddess, and it was in there, but it was all scholarship. It was not any way, any way associated with popular culture or uh, thought. But um, D.H. Lawrence, of course, uh, has his limitations. Um, he has a gender bias, and he is racist. Um, what he said about dark peoples makes me shudder. The slaves, for example, in his story, are lesser mortals. Uh, they are the ones who live only the lesser life, you know, the daily, ordinary life. When the man who died, that is, the Christ in this story revives and recovers from his ordeal on the cross, he finds a woman, well, she finds him. She, of course, is no ordinary creature. She's above and beyond ordinary women. Uh, he always picks women like that. We call this uh, the pedestal complex. He puts woman on a pedestal. He, she's better than the run-of-the-mill. D.H. Lawrence credits her with the divine mystery. No, that's all right. Why not? You know, if you're going to worship something, might as well worship women. Anyway, it's nice to hear that sort of thing. But, of course, David Herbert Lawrence was an elitist in such matters. Only a priestess of Isis will do for him. He, of course, identifies with his character, Christ, in The Man Who Died. Uh, 
he sees Christ himself as an elitist above and beyond the, the slaves, the ordinary menial workers. He sees Christ as a kind of Eastern mystic, I think, um, getting close to Buddhism. In any case, um, D.H. Lawrence's Christ is very far removed from any of the ordinary duties of a husband and father. Um, once the woman, the priestess of Isis, is with child, uh, Christ moves on. D.H. Lawrence motivates uh, the character plot-wise with the arrival of some Roman soldiers. You know, that spells danger and... and uh, uh, this stranger, they call him the stranger, he has to move on. Uh. Also, the priestess of Isis has a mother, and the mother sees a threat to her property. She may set her slaves on this wounded stranger, the one who visits the temple of Isis, to be put back together like the mythical Osiris. <laughs> now, actually... Uh, the stories that I learned, uh, although they, they weren't full of, of uh, uh, mother-in-law types, D.H. Lawrence had his, his uh, knee-jerk reactions to what he considered controlling or scolding women. Uh, but I remember knowing all those myths and tales, uh, especially matrifocal tales coming from Africa and Egypt and, of course, the great Mediterranean world, the place that we're bombing and destroying now, the home of the oldest temple, I believe, um, in the world, Byblos, the temple of Byblos. Yes, we get the word Bible from there. Sumer, Ur, the ancient cradle of civilization, all those ancient stories precede the Christ story. The Christ story is just an amalgam uh, of all those earlier uh, tales of resurrection and rebirth. Uh, but what I did learn as I was growing up, was the depth and the degree of the rejection that Christians demanded from the earlier, earlier uh, stories. They wanted to separate themselves from the pagan stories. Um, I guess the, the feminine, the feminine principle upset them. As any modern evangelical will tell you, uh, there is only one God and he's a guy and they've got him. He belongs to them. He is the truth and the light. Uh, I grew up with this uh, simplistic, literal, religious dogma. Uh, I don't remember rejecting it outright, uh, but I knew that uh, most of the people who believed it were soaked in that sort of nonsense. It's everywhere, folks. Uh, I remember my immediate family had no particular faith. Uh, they were eclectic, uh, creates a vacuum. My religion became romanticism. I remember once the, the late great Rabbi Fine over at Temple Emmanuel in San Francisco, he was joking with us. Uh, he said, well, it's best to give your children some formal belief system. He was talking to young women, yes. So give the children some formal belief system so they have something to reject later, something to knock their heads against when they begin to think. <laughs> As a recovering romantic, I had my work cut out for me. Christianity can be very seductive. 
They say that there are conversion experiences going on in multiplexes all over the country. Mel Gibson's picture, you know, about the suffering, the passion of Christ. Anyway, uh, it's also very seductive for those of us, people like me, who know absolutely nothing about it. Uh, what I knew was mostly Hollywood. I knew the effect of Christianity on artists and on writers and on literature. I saw the power of religious passion on uh, canvases, uh, even on film. And think of the fairy tales. Hans Christian Andersen converted me early. Yes, I think of my, my first um, goddess experience uh, comes from the little match girl, the little girl who dies and goes to her grandmother, the one woman who had loved her always. Uh, this is her ascent into heaven, uh, into the light. She goes to her loving grandmother. She, uh, well, you know how that goes. Uh, they are not really orthodox theology, but they give a sense of um, transcendence. And they certainly seduce people who uh, love the romantic. You, you know, you, you can transcend human love. You can become a spirit of the air and gain an immortal soul if you're the Little Mermaid. You remember Hans Andersen's real story. It's a long, actually it's a short novel. It's a very complex work. It has nothing to do with the stories you see in the um, children's books or in the um, film. Uh, it was about masochism. It's so sensual, masochism. Last night, I watched an early Hollywood film called The Sign of the Cross. <laughs> 1930s, folks, black and white. I first saw that picture at Cecil B. DeMille's production when I was about 12 years old. It devastated me. I'll never forget it. It was not a conversion experience, but it was cathartic. Um, in the picture, in The Sign of the Cross... A woman, a beautiful blonde woman, Elisa Landy, she is the messenger of God, the messenger of Christ. She is the beautiful Christian girl. She falls for a Roman soldier, the absolutely gorgeous young Frederick March. You may remember him, uh, one of our better actors. Anyway, she transcends her own um, dust or carnal passion. She takes this man with her right into the arena of the Roman Colosseum where they are both devoured by the lions. Now, you can imagine what that did to my budding feminist um, ideology. These two climb a stairway into the light. She promises him life everlasting and uh, he buys it. Imagine a uh, conversion experience. When I was growing up, the first rule for most men was, thou shalt not learn of a woman. <laughs> I remember the great door closes behind the two of them, and the light against the door makes the sign of the cross. Of course, even when I was a kid, I knew that the picture was a bit lurid, a bit... Um, a bit over the top, Charles Lawton is hilarious as Nero playing his lute, his lyre. Uh, Rome burns in the opening sequences, and uh, oh, Charles Lawton, 
over the top. Claudette Colbert plays the Empress. Um, she bathes in mule's milk. She has this bare-breasted, brazen attitude. She invites another woman to take off her clothes and get in with her in the milk. And you see the woman's clothes drop down around her ankles. Yes, I think it's pre-code indeed. Uh, <laughs> she was almost as appealing as the beautiful blonde Christian girl, the lead uh, uh, religious passion in the girl, of course, does trump the uh, sense of fun that Claudette Colbert has. She is also after Frederick March, of course, and she is a uh, <clears throat> wicked woman responsible for the uh, death of the girl. The movie, actually, it had uh, a couple of torture scenes. A little boy uh, is uh, horribly tortured. He He's made to tell where the uh, Christians are meeting and then the Romans go and and uh, shoot them full of arrows. I still can't watch that scene because I remember how it scared me as a little kid. And there's a little girl clinging to her dead mother after the Romans massacre the devout souls who listen to the sermon from Christ's followers. Now, today's film audiences will probably, <laughs> probably laugh at most of the film. It's, what is it, um... It's a bit, it's mawkish sentimentality. The little girl whose mother is dead is rescued by a man who picks her up and uh, calls her little sister and takes her with him. And later she goes to her death by lion with the assurance that she is going to her mother. Now, when I was uh, 12, um, I, I could hardly see when I got out of that movie in the last scene... Uh, the Christian martyr, the beautiful blonde, tells them all that they won't die, that they will be with their father in heaven. Uh, the 21st century, I think, would have to rewrite that scene a bit. Um, some adjustments, although it is recognizable to certain um, certain Christian types. Uh, I believe they're called, you know, the folks that, that endorse the rapture. Apparently, apparently these days, we need Mel Gibson. We need uh, a different Christ. Uh, Mel Gibson takes us back to basics. After all, crucifixion is about murder. It's about execution. The cross is a weapon of mass destruction. Now, you remember Spartacus and his army. Uh, they were crucified. Uh, crucifixion was a warning, much like what is happening right now uh, in Iraq where uh, American people are being burned and uh, mutilated and hung up to to be a lesson to us. Whenever I see a cross, especially around the neck of a young person, I think of the Christian blonde in that movie. <laughs> yes, imagine wearing a little guillotine around your neck. <clears throat> a little, um, what is it, uh, 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 something, something that's a uh, torture. Yes, an electric chair, something like that on a string around your throat. Actually, that um, that was my one of my first goddess pictures. Uh, that and the one with Claudette Colbert as Cleopatra. <laughs> the woman in the picture leads a military man into a different life, into her way of life. It may not be exactly 
a feminist, but it's uh, the way of a compassionate Christ, supposedly. Uh, uh, there's an opera all about um, the Romans. Yes, the opera Norma. Uh, these women, yes, I think of them as bodhisattvas, guides, teachers. Uh, but, of course, in The Sign of the Cross, the woman chooses death. There's a banquet in the film in which she is tormented by a wicked woman, a woman who dances um, in a debauched way, trying to lure this innocent and pure girl into depravity. But the Christian hears the voices of martyrs, uh, her friends and family, her tribe. They are singing on their way to prison, and so she is lifted up. Yes, indeed. In the 1930s, Hollywood Christian teaching was really all about loving your neighbor. Uh, it was about the humanitarian message of Jesus. That became popular, actually. Um, oh, gee whiz. Not just the 19th century, but into the 20th century. Uh, lots of it was cornball. See, by the 60s, we had a hippie Christ... That was called Jesus Christ Superstar. Oh, gee, all that cornball Hollywood stuff. It's all going to be all over television this week. I will never forget Anne Baxter in the Ten Commandments in her Egyptian brassieres <laughs> saying to Charlton Heston, Oh, Moses, you great big fool, you. There was another adjective in there somewhere. Um, over Easter... Uh, I think I'll try to avoid most of the biblical pictures they haul out for reruns. I might watch Martin Scorsese's Last Temptation of Christ. Uh, I think of that as still the best revisionist picture. I remember going to see it in San Francisco, and there were oh, just blocks and blocks of protesters there. Uh, they didn't seem to understand that the movie was not about the Gospels. Uh, the director stated carefully on the screen that the movie is taken from a novel by Kazantzakis. You remember Kazantzakis. It's the writer who gave us Zorba the Greek. It's a story uh, somewhat like D.H. Lawrence's tale, a story in which Christ makes a different choice. He survives crucifixion, or he comes down off the cross in um, The Last Temptation, and he marries. He grows old. Yes, that would be The Last Temptation, to live your life. And as we all know, that too is fatal. To be a divine sacrifice may not be the greatest metaphor of all time. We get that impression in the movie The Life of Brian. Uh, that's going to be released again this week. Uh, hopefully it will, uh, it will mitigate against the Mel Gibson picture. The Life of Brian was Monty Python's spin on the Christian religion. Oh, and lots of other socio-political phenomenon. Uh, of course, Brian is not Christ. There's a disclaimer in the first scene when the wise men arrive in Bethlehem. One of them says, whoops, sorry, wrong manger. We follow Brian, uh, who is a reluctant prophet. Uh, people mistake him for a Christ figure. Mostly we get a fascinating phenomenon in that picture. Um, the Python boys were trying to show us what mob thinking is all about. Group think, group dynamic. 
the psychology of crowds, yes, male bonding. You see, that's what religions are all about. Uh, crowd control. Just look at what's going on in the Middle East. As the great French philosopher Voltaire told us, those who can make you believe absurdities can make you commit atrocities. Let me read you just a little passage from D.H. Lawrence's solution to it all. In his story, it's a, well, it's a short novel. Uh, Christ recovers himself. Um, he's taken care of by a kind peasant. And he um, wanders around kind of, kind of stunned and groggy and uh, he reaches out at some point for this goddess of Isis, and she says naively, You are Osiris, aren't you? If you will, he said, will you let Isis discover you? And uh, he says, It has hurt so much, you must forgive me if I'm still held back. They did me to death. She saw the ghost of the death in him as he stood there, thin and stark before her. Suddenly she was terrified, she felt robbed. She felt the shadow of the gray, grisly wing of death, triumphant. Ah, oh, he could not help smiling at her in her naive priestess's absorption. He was her dream, only a dream object to her. She would never know or understand what he was. She was woman. Her life and her death were different from his, only she was good to him. Once a woman washed my feet with tears and wiped them with hair and poured on precious ointment as you are doing, the woman of Isis looked up at him. Were they hurt then, your feet? Oh, no, no, it was while they were whole. And did you love her? Love had passed in her. She only wanted to serve, he replied. She had been a prostitute. And did you let her serve you, she asked. Yea, did you let her serve you with the corpse of her love? I. Suddenly it dawned on him. I asked them all to serve me with the corpse of their love. And in the end, I offered them only the corpse of my love. This is my body. Take and eat my corpse. A vivid shame went through him. After all, he thought, I wanted them to love with dead bodies. If I had kissed Judas with live love, perhaps he would never have kissed me with death. Perhaps he loved me in the flesh and I willed that he should love me bodilessly with the corpse of love. There dawned on him the reality of the soft, warm love which is in touch and which is full of delight. He said to himself, I told them, blessed are they that mourn. Alas, if I mourned even this woman here, now I am in death. I should have to remain dead, and I want so much to live. Life has brought me to this woman with warm hands, and her touch is more to me now than all my words, for I want to live. 
but I have murdered, I lent myself to murder. They murdered me, but I lent myself to murder. The woman was silent now. Quivering, she put her palm over the wound on his right side. He winced, and the wound absorbed his life again as thousands of times before. And in the dark, wild pain and panic of his consciousness rang only one cry. Oh, how can she take this death out of me? How can she take from me this death? She can never know, she can never understand. That's a little tidbit of D.H. Lawrence, The Man Who Died, also published under the title The Escaped Cuck. It's a spin on the Christ story. Uh, it's a tale in which um, Christ comes down off the cross and lives to meet the goddess of Isis, and he becomes the lost Osiris, the man that Isis has to put together again. That's her job. This has been Jennifer Stone. I'll be back, uh, not Thursday, but next Tuesday at 3.30. Till then, go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. Silence Mural Project and Black Laundry presents Iraqan April Valentine for Palestine, a benefit for the Peace and Justice Arts Delegation to Occupied Palestine, promoting international solidarity, justice, and the universality of human rights. Thursday, April 8th, SFE.